Christ is all you need in Him. There is life in Him. There is joy in Him. There is peace in Him. What is impossible with you is possible. So I'm glad that you're here this morning to worship our great Savior. We get to do that now through the preaching of His Word. So please turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, specifically our text, will be verse 28. Familiar text, I'm sure, to many of you. One that's usually preached during Easter. However, during just my recent devotion times, the Lord drew me back to this this text. It stirred my heart, and I pray it'll do the same for you. So to give us some context, I'm going to start in verse... 19, John chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. My goal this morning as we start this new year is that we are reminded of who Jesus is. That He is both Lord and God. So in a question right away, is He your Lord? Is He your God? Is this your confession? Because here we find the true believer's confession. And confession leads to action. And as we begin a new year, may we examine ourselves. Is He my God? Is He my Lord? Because if He is, then my life manifests in a certain way. My life is lived out in a certain way. My life will be characterized, though not perfectly, not perfectly, but my life will be characterized by desire to be righteous, to be holy. My life will manifest in an increasing separation from the ways of this world and the ways of this culture, rather than fitting right in. This confession, this declaration that you have now been justified, it's going to lead to being sanctified, being growing in Christ, being more separated, more separated, more separated. You know, the way I think, the way I prioritize, what I desire, what I pursue, who I pursue, what I spend my time on, what I spend my money on, where my allegiance is. If He is my Lord, and if He is my God, then this confession will manifest in such a way that my life desires to know Him, to make much of Him, above all else. And so two points will guide our time this morning. First, Jesus is God. Second, Jesus is Lord. You know, it's interesting because usually when we think about Thomas and when Thomas is brought up, he is best known for, or what's most well-known attribute of Thomas, is to be doubting Thomas. 
you know, in our social media crazed world where everything is publicized and everything is idolized and everything is exaggerated and everything is contextualized and headlines are intentionally worded to be controversial and provocative and draw within you some emotion. So when an individual does something, literally one thing, for good or bad, that's all they're known for. Think of Alfonso Ribeiro. The reality is, he has had an over 40-year successful career in Hollywood. That's a long time. Doing media, hosting shows, movies, on and on and on. However, he will forever and only be known for one thing. Being Carlton on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So I'm not comparing Thomas to Carlton, but here's the point. Some of Christ's disciples were known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or sons of thunder. Or Peter, the rock. Right? The leader, the spokesman. We know Thomas as doubting Thomas. And though we may think, man, that's messed up. That's messed up. Thomas has one account, at least one account that we know of. One account of doubting And now, that's what he's known for. Of course, the Lord has allowed this, and he's allowed for this to not only happen, but to be included in his scripture for a very specific reason. The end of our chapter, verse 31, tells us that reason that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas's doubt, which came from an unthinkable loss. Jesus has just died. And this hit him hard. You know, we don't know the particular reason, because Scripture doesn't inform us directly, of why Thomas was not in the room with the other disciples. But one could imply that he was grieving so much that he just needed to be alone. Just needed to be alone. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be around anyone. The, the loss was so large. I, I can't be around anyone. It's too difficult. You ever felt like that? I'm sure we can relate. You know, in reality, we can relate very well to Thomas. I need to see it before I believe it. I mean, even the other disciples disciples were telling him they've seen the Lord, but Thomas wasn't having it. He needed to see for himself. And by the way, just a quick observation, some practical application. You see why it's so important that you are physically here, that you are present when the saints gather. Because when you are here and you're around other saints, your faith is strengthened. When you are not here when you are absent you're missing out you know what else starts to creep in doubt doubt that God is good doubt that God understands doubt that God even cares doubt that God says who he, that God is who he says he is I trust we've been there as well And God, time and time again, continues to remind us who He is. That He is kind and compassionate and merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And we can go on and on and on with the adjectives that He's patient and faithful because this is who He is. He isn't like this because of some sort of New Year's resolution. Okay, this year, I'm going to be good. No, God is good and does good, the psalmist says. He does nothing but good. Not being good is against his very nature. And in this account, we see the kindness of the Lord and his gentleness. Because after eight days, verse 26, here we go again, right? They were inside, and Jesus again appears. Seemingly went right through the wall. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing detail, by the way. It gives us some insight into Christ's resurrected body. That it's every bit physical, but it's not 
constrained by time or space or hard surface. I mean, he just went through the wall. So he was there. Christ comes alongside Thomas in the midst of his doubting. Says, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, and my God, this is the first time of any of the disciples in all of Scripture to confess it like this. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Our first point, Jesus is God. Thomas had seen the proof. But even before this, Thomas saw with his very own eyes many things that would lead him to this conclusion that Jesus is God. Christ himself asked this question in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And your answer to this question is more important than any. Because your answer to this question has eternal ramifications. So who do you say that I am? And remember, these things have been written so that you may believe. And that goes for Thomas as well. So what are some of these things just in the Gospel of John? Well, Jesus turned water into wine, John 2. He read the mind of the woman of Samaria, John 4. Further in John 4, he healed the official's son, John 5. Healed the man crippled for 38 years. John 6. Fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Further in John 6, walks on water. John 9, healed a man born blind. John 11, raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus pre-existed before the world was. John 1, 1, in the beginning, which mimics Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Turn to John 17. You know, in his prayer, in John 17, Jesus refers to his pre-existing, and really uses terminology that can only be used with the divine. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is also the creator. Thomas saw this firsthand as well. Colossians 1.15, he is the firstborn over all creation. And in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Creating is a divine attribute. All things were made through Him. John chapter 1. Through the Word. All things. Through the Word that was God. Through the Word that became flesh and tabernacled among men. You know, false teachings about Christ. This is the intersection right here. Colossians 1.15. Paul was even addressing this and combating this in Colossae. That Christ was a created being, and Colossians 1.15 is it. There it is. Firstborn over all creation. But that's not what the text says. Here Paul uses a Greek word, prototokos, which means firstborn. And if Paul believed that Jesus was created, then he would have used a different Greek word. Prototistos. And that means first created. So why didn't Paul use that word? It's because Paul didn't believe Jesus was created. By describing Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, Paul is saying that he has absolute power, absolute sovereignty over all creation. And firstborn doesn't literally mean born first, like in chronological terms. Firstborn refers to having rule, having an authority. And Jesus identified himself as God. In John chapter 8, Jesus told them, I told you 
that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So, of course, natural reaction, people were asking Him, well, then who are you? Who are you to make these claims? Jesus answered that. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, they knew what that meant. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was identifying himself to be God. Because as a good Jew, at that time, hearing someone say, I am, they would have gone directly to Exodus chapter 3. And while phrased slightly different, it's essentially the same question. When Moses asked God, they're going to ask me who sent me. So who should I tell them sent me? What is his name? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. It's the covenant name of God. And in the account of the burning bush there in Exodus 3, God stated, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Christ in John 8 says, before Abraham was, I am. These are the very words that caused the Roman soldiers to fall to the ground when they came to arrest Christ. This is explicit. Identifying himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. You know, this is why they wanted to kill him. This is why they wanted to stone him. Because this was blasphemous. But, dear church, this isn't blasphemy. This is Christianity. They knew exactly what he was saying and who he was identifying himself with, but they refused to believe it. And Paul later expounds on this in Romans chapter 1. Turn there. Romans chapter 1. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Contextually, this refers to creation in that the heavens declare the glory of God, but that can be clearly seen. But there is none clearer, no finer example of clarity, no 4K or OLED or Las Vegas sphere, vibrant colors can ever visually compare to actually seeing him face to face. And Jesus was standing right in front of them. The sinful man suppresses the truth. In other words, restrains it. In other words, holds it back. As R.C. Sproul once described it, it's like a spring coil that has to be actively held down. Because if it's not suppressed or held down, it's just going to keep springing up. But in man's sinful foolishness, he thinks he can hold this truth down. And as one popular song correctly stated, can't nobody hold me down. Of course, Jesus wouldn't quite say it that way because that's bad grammar. Because Jesus is perfect. But you get what I'm saying. God's word shall not return void. It will accomplish its purpose. The word became flesh, will accomplish his mission, and no one will stop it. No one can stop it. And what is that purpose? To seek and save that which was lost. He is building his church and no one will stop it. The Father has separated out a people for himself and this sheep need a shepherd. And the good shepherd has come and Thomas has seen and believed this is him and he is mine and notice the consistent pattern Christ comes to him 
the disciples in the room, all locked up, fearing for their lives, Christ comes and appears to them. Christ is the one who comes. And this isn't just poetic language or simply coincidental. No, this is intentional. Because it has to be. Because in and of ourselves, we won't come. He has to come. When Peter in Matthew 16 gives his great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christ tells Peter, this did not come from you. God is the one who revealed this to you. And there's a reason why we cannot on our own come. Because we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, we weren't dying. We're dead. We weren't in the ER. We weren't in the ICU. We're dead. Destitute of life. Inanimate. Inactive as respects to doing right. You know, this is what theologians have called the bondage of the will. And yes, we are free moral agents. Free to choose. But here's the problem. Is we don't choose what we are. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are slaves of sin. We are slaves of unrighteousness. And in our iniquity, which means we are bent a certain way, we are twisted a certain way, that bent and that twist is towards a gravitational pull towards sin. Which already tells you that direction is opposite of God. There's a virus in the software, so then the hardware doesn't work right. You know, back in Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Think of our condition, even, even Paul encourages us to remember when you were separate from Christ. Right? So this is a good exercise for us. Think of our condition apart from Christ. You know, in verse 1, Ephesians 2, verse 1, we are dead. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, we are walking. You know what we call dead people walking? Zombies. Zombies. And of course, it would only be our enemy to make zombies cool and mainstream. There's an entire generation of them. Generation Z. This isn't a state of cool. This is a state of sadness. This is a state of helplessness. Remember when you were separate from Christ. This was indicative of who you were. Dead man walking. But not aimlessly. You weren't walking aimlessly. No, you were walking intentionally after God. No. According to the course of this world. You were shaped by this world. You were influenced by this world. You walked, meaning you lived just like this world. This same world. This same cosmos that the Apostle John later wrote in 1 John. Don't love this world. Interesting, the word course gives the idea of a period of time. Period of time. You see how fresh and alive God's Word is? Because it's not only talking about the period of time when Paul was writing this to the Ephesians. Because period of time gives it a, a, a never-ending period of time. Like a, like a forever aspect to it. So this includes our period of time. Today. And all that's happened today is bring about a pervasive level of selfishness. A look-at-me, a follow-me, narcissistic personality disorder, swipe culture, non-committal, lazy, arrogant, entitled, and so much more. This period of time is just more public because of social media and other technological outlets. So it's just really brought about what's, what's always been there. Zombies walking. This is why Ephesians 2, 4, 
Just those two beginning words are so precious. But God. But God. Merciful, loving God made us alive together with Christ that we can be made alive together with Christ because Christ is God, Christ is alive, Christ conquered death, and Christ showed up right in front of Thomas and stopped Thomas's doubt right in its tracks, did away with it forever. You know, just last week, it's crazy to, <laughs> it's crazy to think, at least for me at least, that I celebrated my 19-year Air Force anniversary last week. And I guess you can say, I've been in long enough to hear all the jokes. All the jokes about the Air Force. I've also been in long enough to realize that because the Air Force are generally smarter, better has better food, better facilities, golf courses on base, air-conditioned tents during deployments, heated blankets, etc. That all the jokes really come out of jealousy. But also understand that most of the jokes are usually directed at the corporate side of the Air Force. You know, your personnelists, the non-firearm-carrying folks, your, your, your finance people. Even the pilots get made fun of. No, you're not top gun, or you can't land on an aircraft carrier, blah, blah, blah. Right? But you know, there's one job, though, that no one dares make fun of. Not Army Delta, not Army Rangers, not Marine Force Recon, no Navy SEALs dare joke about this one Pararescue. PJs for short. And the reason why is because the PJs have one job. Save your life. Save your life. They're saving lives of people who are completely incapable of saving themselves. So when the chopper, as it were, is hovering over that hot LZ. You think that PJ's lowered down halfway and telling whoever they're saving, yeah, just meet me here. Or I just need a hand. I just need a little bit. We would think that's crazy because this person is incapable of doing anything. So they jump all the way in, rescues that person. And I realize this is an imperfect example. But my hope in sharing that is to simply give us a visual of the condescension of Christ that's spoken of in Philippians 2. You know, this chasm, Luke 16 tells us, between us and God is wide. This chasm we can't cross. This chasm is impossible to cross because God's standard is high. It's all the way up here because His standard is perfection. His standard is holiness. His standard is perfect obedience. His standard is righteousness and sinlessness, all of which we fall far short. So Christ condescended this chasm, multiple levels of condescension existing in the form of God, emptied himself, took the form of a bondservant, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is God. He came to you. He rescued you. And you see how precious and particular this death is. It didn't simply make it possible for you to be saved. No, Christ actually saved you because his sheep hear his voice. So when Thomas proclaimed and confessed, my God, this assurance... This confidence, it didn't come from Him. It came from Christ Himself. Because Christ Himself came to Him. Is He your God? Or do you need more proof that He is Emmanuel, God with us, that He is the 
intersection, as it were, of heaven and earth. That in Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, that He is the mediator between God and man, that His sacrifice, dear friend, has torn the veil so you can go to Him right now. Thomas confesses, my God. All of the divine offices spoken of in the Old Testament manifested fully in Christ. He's my prophet. He's my priest. He's my king. He is my prophet in that he reveals God. He is my priest in that he provides access to God. He is my king because he exercised the rule of God. This is why Christ can say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is God. Our second and last point, Jesus is Lord. That word there, kurios, means master. It means the one in charge. It means the one who calls the shots. It's the owner, the sovereign. It means to whom all belongs and the one whom decides all. This is the title given to Jesus, the Messiah. Thomas confessed and proclaimed, My Lord. And unlike mainstream Christianity today where easy believism is so prominent, what I mean by that, what I mean by easy believism is the fact that you can say Jesus is God, you can even wear religious shirts like he greater than I or fear of God, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything because life has not changed. Still a zombie. Just a dressed up zombie. With overpriced streetwear. Quote, that showcases Christianity in a cool and unorthodox way. Unquote. You know, if you want to showcase Christianity, the orthodox way is what God's word prescribes. And the life that manifests that Jesus is Lord of your life, it will not be cool. It will never be cool. It will never be cool to this world because the world believes Christ and the gospel is foolishness. It's never going to be cool. So when Thomas said, my Lord, his life proved that Jesus is his Lord. Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is the account of Lazarus. And Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, we're going back to Judea. Of course, in context, that's where the Jews just tried to kill him. Was in Judea. And Christ said, we're going back. So naturally, the disciples were a little confused. A little shocked by this. They just tried to kill you there, and now you want to go back. Read with me verse 16. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus is your Lord, when he is your master, you're going to follow him. You're going to follow. You know, it's it's interesting. It seems here that all the other disciples were doubting. They're all questioning the Lord, but not Thomas. You follow Christ. You follow Christ wherever it is that he's leading. You know, it's amazing as we've somehow flip-flopped that. And it's amazing, like, where we get this from. That I'm going to go where I want to go, And Lord, you follow me. Lord, I want to go over here because that's where my desire is. So Lord, you follow me. So we're presuming on the grace of God. That he would somehow bless decisions that we make that aren't conferred with him, that aren't prayed to him. Yeah, we just want to do it on our own. But yeah, God, God, you follow me. Gotten that backwards. Jesus commanded repeatedly, follow me. Wherever I am, follow me. 
take up your cross. Follow me. So what does this practically look like? What does this practically look like? One of the ways is through his word. Colossians chapter 3, letting his word dwell within you richly. You know what a perfect time. The beginning of the year. Plenty of Bible reading plans available. I can recommend some to you. Just ask me after service. You know, when you think about God's glory manifested in Christ and Christ's glory manifested itself in His bride, the local church. So if this is His bride and He loves it so much that He sacrificed Himself for it, that He nourishes the church, He washes and purifies the church, then if He is your Lord, then you will desire to be here. You will prioritize being here. You will prioritize being with the saints. Whenever the saints gather, you prioritize fellowship. Because like David said, these people are the people whom I delight in. When Jesus is your Lord and Paul, as he's talking about the incomparable Christ in Colossians 1, we heard a lot about that in the last few weeks. Paul didn't mince any words. He didn't subtly imply it. No, he directly said that Christ will come to have first place in everything. So does Christ have first place in everything? What a time to evaluate ourselves. Does he? Because if he has first place in everything, then there are things in your life that become non-negotiable, don't they? You see, I don't need to list anything out. You know what things, if there are any, that are actually first place in place of Christ. You know what they are. But the surpassing knowledge of Christ will render everything else but rubbish. This sounds absolutely impossible. This sounds absolutely counter-cultural and crazy to live this way. But this is the Lord's way. And when he says, follow me, this is what it means. That we desire to be holy because he is holy. That we want to live righteous, obedient lives that please him. We manifest, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Christ never once gave us the impression that following him would be easy. What he said was following him leads to life. And life abundantly Following Him leads to a satisfaction and a fulfillment and a joy that this world, no matter how hard it tries to tug at your heart's affections, cannot provide. Jesus never spoke lightly about following Him. In Matthew 8, He said, Follow me, let the dead bury their own. In Luke 14, He says, Follow me, you've got to count the cost. In Matthew 11, Follow me, and if you follow me, I'm going to put my yoke on you. Matthew 7, follow me, and the way is hard. And I say this to say this. This shouldn't drive you away from Christ. No, what this should do is drive you to Him. Because it's apparent that it cannot be done on our own strength. Christ has given us a helper. And as we pursue Him, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we're going to realize that it is Him who is working in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know, it saddens me because really most of what's propagated today, it's an incomplete gospel. Believe on Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Believe, believe, believe. And what is implied is just believe. And that's what's safe. That's what's socially acceptable. Because you're really not asking anyone to change anything. It's a convenient gospel. But the Bible clearly teaches the gospel of Christ to be repent and believe. There is a life transformation because you have a new master. You have a new Lord. The God of this world is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your master. When grace called your name, as it were, it's like Lazarus. When Christ called Lazarus' name, you're going to come forth. You have a new heart. You have new affections. 
You have new desires. There will now be an internal struggle where there was no internal struggle before. And, and Paul expounds on that in Romans chapter 7. There was never a struggle before. But now there is. Why? Because sin's no longer your master. You know there's a better way, so there's that struggle there. This is exactly what the devil wants you to believe, is to just believe. Just believe. Because if you just believe, then Jesus is not your Lord. Because this is what the demons also do, is just believe. They even shudder. But Christ is not their Lord. You may be familiar with the phrase stolen valor. Stolen valor. This refers to someone who falsely claims military awards or medals they did not earn. Service they did not perform. And you ask, why would someone do this? It's because they want all the benefits without the cost. They want all the benefits without the sacrifice. You know, when Jesus is your Lord, then you discipline your body. 1 Corinthians 9. As Lawson once put it, quote, you buffet your body, you don't buffet your body. Unquote. You pursue holiness, Hebrews 12. You know, back to our guy Thomas. Actually, turn to John 14. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14, the beginning of what is often called the upper room discourse. Christ will soon be crucified. And understandably so, his disciples are distraught, they're troubled, they need comforting. And in verse 5, here's our guy. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So what does this example of Thomas tell us? That when you are confused, when you are in need of comfort, when you are distraught, and you don't even know what's going on, when you are questioning what is happening, it's not the fact that you are confused or distraught. That's not even the main thing. The main thing is where do you take it? And here, because Jesus is Thomas' Lord, his Master, when there is something that he wants to know, where does he take it? To the Lord. And this is consistent all throughout Scripture. Mark chapter 9, there's a father with a sick child, and he's at the end of himself. And he's doubting that Christ can help. You see, it's not the doubting that's the main thing. Where did he take that doubt? He confessed to the Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Back to John 11, when Lazarus had died and Martha is devastated, so much so that when she saw Jesus, yeah, it's amazing, when Martha saw Jesus. This is what she said to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Probably upset. Surely she's sad. She's basically blaming God. Why weren't you here? You let my brother die. Why is this happening? We can understand this, right? We can understand this. But that's not where it ends. The following verse, John eleven twenty two. this is amazing. Martha says there, even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Even now. As one pastor puts it, This is grown-up faith right here. This is grown-up faith right here. Even now. Because Jesus is Lord, we can come boldly. We can come confidently to the throne of grace. We can approach it. We can draw near so that we may receive mercy. 
and find grace to help in time of need. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And you don't need to over-spiritualize it. You can go to Him with your confusion. You can go to Him with your questions, your grief, your despair, all of your burdens. It's not too heavy for Him. He's able to bear it all. It's not too much for Him. So when things get hard, you can tell Him, Lord, this is hard. But I know You're allowing it for my good. And this can be said with tears running down your face. This has nothing to do with happiness. It has everything to do with joy. Lord, I'm lonely. I'm tempted to pursue this relationship, but I know this relationship will not please you. It will not spur me on to greater likeness of you, so Lord, help me. Lord, I want this job. And this job makes a lot of money, but it seems this job will cause me to work more and be away more and not make fellowships and not even make church, but I want this job. This is the promotion I've always wanted. Oh, but not my will. But yours be done. Lord, why did I get this medical diagnosis? Why me? Oh, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. No matter how painful, you can trust that Jesus is Lord. And because He is your Lord, you know that He understands the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. He understands that to an unimaginable, unfathomable, incomparable level. That as He hung on that cross as the realization and as the reality of being abandoned by His Father. Christ asked for this cup to pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Oh, His grace will be sufficient for you. In your weakness, His power is perfected. So is He your Lord? You know, when I read Matthew 7, it scares me that many will say to Him, Lord, Lord, look at all I've done. Yet the Lord will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This may be some of you this morning. You're playing games with God. You say that you believe that He is God, that God raised Him from the dead, but you haven't yet confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Oh, He says, come. He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to conclude with this. You know, it's my desire that we can wholeheartedly confess this. He is my Lord. He is my God. You know, in an ever-changing and ever-shifting world, aren't you glad for Hebrews 13, 8, that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He's immutable. People change. Some people seem to change on the day, depending on the day. It's almost better to ask, who are you today, as opposed to how are you today? You know, thank God we never have to ask Jesus, who are you today? Jesus never changes. Jesus never wavers. He is immutable. His holy character will not change. His standards will not change. His eternal purposes will not change. His word will not change. His saving power will not change. His steadfast love will not change. His authority will not change. So whatever came your way in 2023, Jesus is the same yesterday. Was He faithful to you? Did He provide for you? Was He there for you 
Did He comfort you? Oh, Jesus the Lord is the Ancient of Days, as it says in Micah 5. Jesus was the same before there was anything called yesterday. He's the same today. As H.B. Charles stated, quote, the Bible is not a history book about what Jesus did yesterday. The Bible is a God-breathed resume of what Jesus can do today. Unquote. Do you need that today? Because Spurgeon said it well. It is folly to think the Lord provides grace for every trouble but the one you are in today. And He's the same forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. So may we resolve, dear church, this year to know this to know this God, to proclaim His excellencies, to commune with Him, to make Him first, to make much of Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, You are worthy. You are Lord and You are God. And it would serve us well. It would serve your people well. To know this. To live this. To hide this in our heart, as it were. It would not only be better for us, but you know exactly what we need. And what we need is you. So I pray, God, for those here to glory in your faithfulness and to look ahead into whatever it is this year will bring about. We don't know, but you know. And may that be enough for us that our God knows and our God comforts and our God leads. And may we follow. In Christ's name, amen.